Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you again this week to discuss a topic that I'm pretty sure will be of interest to all of you that are currently invested in multifamily real estate and will be of interest someday to those of you that are thinking about investing, and that is lazy equity. What exactly is lazy equity and what can you do with it? How do you get it from being lazy to being hardworking equity? And why would I want to do that? What is it about all these different strategies? Well, we have four strategies we're going to share with you today around taking lazy equity and getting it to work for you so that you can achieve the goals you have in your multifamily portfolio. So thanks for joining me. As always, if you have any questions, you can email me, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Feel free to swing by marapoling.com and check out the Learning Center, all the great content there. We have upcoming webinars that you can register for at the Learning Center, as well as recordings of recently broadcast webinars, uh, the most recent being around wealth creation. And we have one coming up on handcrafting investments that we recently held. That recording has been leased, uh, released to the registrants and will go public sometime next week. Uh, that's a great reason to register for webinars. Those of you that register, regardless of whether you're able to attend live or not, we'll get an advanced copy of the recording before it is released on the Learning Center. So uh, there you go. Please enjoy all that educational content. And with that, let's talk about lazy equity. So first off, what is lazy equity? If you Google lazy equity, you'll get some different things. You'll get a lot of advertisements for investments. Um, if you go to Investopedia and put in lazy equity, it will bring up a bunch of stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I'm not sure where I first heard the term. Uh, it always stuck with me and it made a lot of sense. So lazy equity is the equity that you have grown in any investment that is essentially more than you need to have in that investment. So if you were buying a piece of real estate, uh, a $10 million property, and you're going to put $2.5 million down and have $7.5 million in debt, that $2.5 million is the equity that you agree to have up front. Well, if over time you're able to grow that to be $5 million in equity, well, that's $2.5 million more than what you originally put in and some amount more than what you feel like you need to have in there in order to be a, a appropriately leveraged asset. So it's that extra equity. And the reason we describe it as being lazy is it's not doing anything for you. In the example I just gave, the property isn't performing any differently because that equity is there. My debt payment didn't go down, so I still have the same loan uh, payment. Uh, I'm not, by virtue of having that equity there, throwing off any more cash flow. Now, I probably have more cash flow than I started with because 
one of the primary ways that equity grows is by growing net operating income. And as net operating income grows, so will cash flow. But the fact that I have more equity doesn't necessarily mean that I have uh, proportionally the same amount of incremental uh, cash flow. So you can have lazy equity from a variety of ways. You could have lazy equity because you've grown the value of the asset by growing net operating income. That would be the preferred way of doing it. Uh, I've got a $10 million property. It generates $500,000 in NOI, and I'm going to generate another uh, $200,000 in NOI on top of that to get it to seven hundred. dollars which is going to make the value of my property now $14 million. Subtract out the debt that I borrowed, and I've added two or three, maybe even $4 million of equity to the property. All right. As I said, if I've done that, my cash flow has probably gone up too because NOI has gone up, although not proportionally because I'm also going to have some equity growth by having paid some principal on the loan and retired some of it that way. It's also possible that my equity has increased because of market conditions. So I, I buy that $10 million property with $500,000 in NOI, which by the way, that's a five cap. And then uh, that turns into a four cap market, meaning that uh, that $500,000, each dollar of NOI is now not worth $20, which is what it was when I bought it. It's now worth $25. Therefore, the property's worth $12.5 million. So I just made a couple million dollars in additional equity, but I don't have any incremental cash flow because the property is actually not performing any differently. The NOI stayed the same. And it's possible that there's a combination of both of those that's gone up. And then, as I said, another way that you can grow equity is through the retirement of debt. So as you pay down the mortgage on a property, you'll increase the amount of equity. Uh, and some of that equity could be considered lazy equity. How do I know how much lazy equity I've got, right? If I'm getting ready to think about doing something with this lazy equity, well, how much is that? That's a very personal decision. And what it really ties back to is the amount of risk which translates in the amount of leverage that you are comfortable having in your investment. So if you're managing your own portfolio, you might be comfortable with 50% leverage or 60% leverage. If you're investing passively and investing with a sponsor, you might be comfortable with 80% leverage. You might be looking for large returns and are comfortable having a higher leverage. We target about 70% as our overall effective leverage. And we have a real hard time even getting near 70% simply because assets, as we continue to manage them well, grow in value. And as they grow in value, that equity uh, number, uh, the leverage uh, decreases as the equity increases. Uh, our portfolio is currently in the 50s. We would really like to be up in the 60s, in the higher 60s, um, which means we have lazy equity. Uh, and we're in the process of redeploying some of that this year, which is one of the strategies we will uh, talk about. 
So depending upon the amount of risk you're comfortable with, let's look at our example that I just ran through. Say we've got that $10 million property and it's grown to $14 million. So at $14 million, if I'm comfortable with 75% leverage, which is what I had originally, then I've got $3 million of incremental equity, lazy equity in that asset that's sitting there. The original equity was two and a half million because we had a seven and a half million dollar loan, 75%. 75% of 14 million is 10 million 500. That's $3 million more. So I could refinance as an example and pull that $3 million out. And we'll talk about those strategies more in a moment. So I've got a few million dollars of lazy equity that's not really doing anything for me. So what can I do with my lazy equity? And we've got four strategies we'll talk about. Um, I'm sure there are many more. These are just four that came to mind when we were discussing this uh, topic recently. And they are in a bit of a sequence. Um, So we're going to go from what would be, uh, from what I would describe as the uh, ultimate lowest risk, lowest return, simplest, easiest, to the more complex uh, and the higher return and the most advantageous. Uh, And then we'll take a look at, um, at the steps in between. So the first strategy is, don't do anything. Just leave it alone. Uh, if I have a property that's gone from $10 million to $14 million, and I still owe the $7.5 million, or maybe I own a, owe a little less because I've paid some of it down, I could just leave it alone. And I could just keep going and paying uh, on the note. Uh, in a portfolio that you might manage yourself, maybe you have a couple of duplexes, That's actually an extremely common strategy, a goal that many people have uh, that I speak with, which, by the way, if you've got your own portfolio and would like to chat, I'm always happy to do that. And you can email me, pat at marapolling.com, and we'll set up a time to do that. Um, But many, many people that own their own portfolios, their goal is, I don't want to have any debt. I want it paid off completely, and I'm just going to live on the cash flow. And... uh, That is very simple. It's very easy. It will absolutely give you cash flow on that asset, right? There's there's no complexity to it at all. It's also going to give you the lowest return. Uh, And the reason for that is this, is remember when we talk about cap rates, the definition of a cap rate is it's the unlevered rate of return, meaning it's the rate of return before you apply any leverage or any debt to it. So that $10 million property that's generating a uh, $500,000 net operating income, that's a 5% return. If I don't put any debt on that asset, I'm going to get a 5% return. That's, That's what I'm going to earn. So if I have a property and I pay it off completely, I will have my return simply be the unlevered rate of return. It'll simply be the cap rate. Um, And then if I can grow NOI, I'll get some incremental uh, growth on top of that from an equity standpoint, uh, but I'm I'm just getting 
uh, dollar for dollar, I'm not getting any additional leverage. So I'm not getting two or three or $4 uh, for that incremental um, growth. It's also the least tax efficient strategy. So whatever depreciation strategy I've been using on an asset, if I hold the asset long-term and simply pay uh, the note off, I'm not only going to maintain the same depreciation strategy, so I don't get any new depreciation to work with, I'm also going to be paying down the principal and eventually getting rid of it, which means I'll lose my interest expense deduction. So um, simple, easy to do. Many individuals' objective is to leave it alone and simply pay it off. And that comes at the cost of the lower return that I described and being less tax efficient. Well, if that's not for you, then maybe strategy number two is, and that is borrow some of it out. In the example I just gave, that $10 million building that becomes a $14 million building, if I'm comfortable with the same leverage that I had up front, 75%, then there's about $3 million that I can borrow out. Property's gone up in value by $4 million. I can borrow as much as $3 million of that out. And then I can go reinvest that and it's going to cost me some money to borrow that, right? I've got a new loan for $3 million or I've paid the original loan off and I have a new loan that's $3 million larger. However it is, I structure it. I've got some additional debt service. Well, that's going to take cash. Yes, but I'm also investing that $3 million in a new investment and that's going to generate cash. And it may or may not initially cover my incremental debt service it probably will. And then fairly quickly, it will begin to exceed that number. So I will get some incremental cash flow. I'm also going to get some incremental equity growth because that $10 million property that grew to be a $14 million property is going to continue to grow in value. But I'm also going to get equity growth out of the property I've invested the $3 million in. So this sounds like a pretty good strategy. It's tax efficient from the standpoint that I'm not selling the original asset, so I don't have to pay gains taxes. The $3 million I'm borrowing out is most likely tax-free. And I say that simply because you need to talk to your CPA about all of these particular scenarios. But for our purposes here, we're going to treat that as though it is tax-free. And I get new depreciation on the new asset. That sounds like a pretty good a pretty good deal. I do still have the old asset, which means I'm keeping the old assets depreciation schedule. So I'm not getting new depreciation there. And I'm only able to get to 3 million of the $4 million of incremental equity. So I'm not getting my hands necessarily on everything uh, that's in there. And now I own two properties, which might be my objective. So if my objective is to build a portfolio of assets, this strategy has some merit to it. And if I'm purchasing properties that are large enough to execute 1031s rather simply, that's great. I have spoken with many of you that have single family portfolios, three, eight, 12, even 20 single family homes. And you've begun the process of thinking about how you can transition from there to larger multifamily properties. And you want to do a 1031. 
Well, if you follow this strategy, that's where you'll end up. You'll end up with a lot of properties, and then you've either got to find a portfolio sale that you could execute, which may or may not be a challenge for you, or you've got to deal with the timing of how you put a bunch of individual little 1031s together. So if you're comfortable with multiple properties, this might make sense for you. If you want to keep your money in a smaller number of assets, maybe this doesn't make as much um, sense. And if you're investing passively, for this strategy to work, you need to find a fund to invest in. Individual syndications are not going to be structured this way because there's only one asset. So you'd need to find a fund to invest in. Um, the total return fund that we operate, this is one of the strategies we have at our disposal. We have not deployed this yet because one of the other strategies that we're going to talk about has been a better fit for us in most instances. Um, but this is certainly a tool we have in our toolkit. All right. So let's say that you don't want to do that, that you, I want to get to all of the equity. I don't want to just get to some of it. I want to get to all of that extra equity I earned. I want to get all of it busy doing something. Well, then you could sell and you could sell and not do an exchange. Just do a straight sale. You would get to 100% of that equity. And then you could, because you're going to, in a moment here, we're going to talk about taxes. You could then take those net proceeds and invest them in anything that you want to. Now, once you've done that, you are in a position, though, where you're going to have to pay some tax. And you're going to do that with capital gains rates and depreciation recapture rates, which are favorable rates. And this is tax that you're going to pay anyway, again, with that one exception of a step up in basis that we've talked about. So that might make a lot of sense for you, especially if you're interested in putting those dollars maybe into multiple investments, and maybe some of that's not real estate, right? So that might make a lot of sense. But if that's not a fit, if, if you don't want to have multiple properties, if you uh, want to access all of the equity and get all of it working for you, if you want to take full advantage of the tax benefits and um, you're not pushing the envelope, this is, not, this is not doing anything beyond the norm, but you want to take full advantage of what you can from a tax standpoint, then you want to look at the strategy that we have used predominantly to free up lazy equity and get it working. And that is a 1031 sale exchange. So this allows you to free up all of that equity. You sell the $14 million property. You're going to walk away with your original two and a half that you put in. And you're going to walk away with this $4 million as well. Now there's some costs for buying and costs for selling and any capital you put in that gets netted out of that. So maybe your net net when you walk away is $5 million, two and a half that you put in and another two and a half that you gain uh, on top of that. It's very tax efficient because you don't have to pay tax on any of that gain. You defer that. You also get brand new depreciation on that new asset. You're going to buy a larger asset. 
maybe you sold for 14. And as I said, maybe you're coming out of there and you're buying uh, a much larger uh, property from that standpoint. Maybe you're going to purchase a um, um, uh, 16 or 17 or $18 million asset. And as you do that, you're getting incremental depreciation. Yes, you're rolling in some basis from that original asset, but you're also getting some new depreciation on the new asset. That newer asset is going to have a higher cash flow. It's going to have higher equity growth. All of this sounds great. So why wouldn't I do this all the time? This is complicated to do. 1031s have specific requirements that need to be met, both in terms of sizing and in terms of timing. And if those are not met, then it's not a 1031 and you have to pay the tax. So if you're going to do a 1031, you have to have a very specific strategy about how you're going to go out and do that. And that may be more than what you want to do. Now, if you're a passive investor, you're simply looking to invest with a firm, uh, a sponsor that has 1031 as part of their strategy and that that's the way they're going to structure these assets. So if you like the idea of owning an asset outright, not having any debt on it, and that's what you're going to be the most comfortable with, then you should do strategy one. Let your lazy equity continue to grow and pay that loan down. And when you get the loan paid off, then you'll own that property free and clear. You're doing that with some costs around returns and tax efficiencies. But this is about having a property that works for you and an investment that works the way you want your portfolio to work. If that's important to you, then that's the way you should structure it. If you like the asset you currently own and you're okay owning multiple properties, maybe that's even an objective and are thinking that down the road, I might do some 1031s, maybe not, then strategy number two, where you borrow the lazy equity out, or at least a portion of it, that might make a lot of sense. There's some additional uh, earnings that you get, some higher returns than if you simply stayed with one asset and paid it off. You also get some additional tax benefits in terms of depreciation. It just comes at the cost of having more assets to manage and potentially having a more complex exit down the road. If you want to move some or maybe all of your money out of real estate and you don't want to deal with 1031 hassles, maybe you want to sell and stay in real estate, but I don't want to deal with a 1031. I just want to pay the tax and then move on. Well, then you could do number three, right? You could sell. It doesn't have to be a 1031 or it doesn't have to be a full 1031. That's a bit of a hybrid strategy between this third and fourth. You could sell it instead of buying a 15 or $16 million property, you could buy an $8 million property and take the rest of your money and do something else with it. And then last um, would be if you're looking to maximize your return, maximize the tax advantages, and you're willing to do the work around a 1031 or work with a sponsor that has a track record and willingness to do 1031s. This allows you to maintain a single asset or a small number of assets uh, and optimize your returns. Then strategy four, the 1031 sale exchange is going to make the most sense. I hope that's all been 
uh, logical and laid out in a way that helped you think about them. If you have questions about any of those strategies, if you'd like to discuss your individual portfolio, or if you're thinking about doing some passive investing and are looking to understand how a fund does some of the things we talked about, then shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. I'll be happy to chat with you about all of that. Again, visit the Learning Center at marapolling.com. Lots of great content there. I hope this was valuable to you and that you have a great week. Please join me next time on another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Polling.